Welcome back, everyone, to So As We Were Saying, a physical therapy podcast. This is season three, episode six, using therapeutic exercise therapeutically. We are joined by our co-host, Mike Reeves. Hello, everyone. So this is going to kind of be a hodgepodge type of episode where I'm sure Mike and I will go on some tangents and explore different topics. But the main reason we wanted to talk about this and discuss this particular topic is because I remember as an intern and even coming out of school, the big thing that I was struggling to understand was kind of bridging the gap between people have these pathoanatomic injuries that really exercise or stretching or whatever we decide to do isn't going to necessarily change that pathoanatomy. And we wanted to talk about how we use exercise, not only for strengthening or flexibility, but how it's therapeutic exercise designed to create targeted therapeutic effects. And the main story that I kind of remember from when I was an intern was we had a patient who had a hip labral tear. And I remember asking an instructor, Hey, like we're doing some strengthening, we're doing some stretching, but are we, like, what are we really going to do for this patient? If she has a tear in her labrum and no amount of strengthening or no amount of stretching is going to fix that issue, isn't she going to end up needing surgery at, at some point? And the answer is it depends. Kind of yes, kind of no. It would depend on the severity of the injury, how responsive that patient is to loading and that's going to have some non-modifiable factors like how reactive her inflammatory system is, uh, how progressive and chronic the injury has been, and as far as how disciplined is she with her loading and return to, to activity. So we won't discuss that specific case on the podcast, but more kind of setting the stage as to what got me thinking about this particular topic. So Mike, do you feel like with these patients, it's pretty much a lost cause and they're going to need surgery at some point? Or do you feel like from a therapeutic standpoint, we can use exercise to, to get them back to full function? And, and why do you feel that way? I mean, in that like specific case of like a hip labral tear, it's, it's a tough one. Because when you have someone with like a labral tear, it's not like we can add in interventions that can like, other than kind of movement to the area, like we're not going to add in anything that's going to create like significant adaptation of like the labrum itself. So we're trying, we're, we're pretty much trying to like trust the body to kind of heal up a little bit and calm down. And in the process, trying to make sure that they don't get stiff and weak. And then as we kind of go through that, we can also make sure that like they understand how to maybe move a little bit better. Standard example would be if they kind of irritate their labrum when they go into flexion and deduction, internal internal rotation for your standard, kind of like what you might expect to develop with like some sort of like pincer type impingement that kind of develops into like a, a labral tear. Then you kind of teach them how to squat, move, do things out of that position and see if that helps. But if it's really angry and it just and, and and the body just like won't calm down no matter how much you offload it, then it's kind of one of those things where it's like, sure you can do some table strengthening, but if the instant they get weight bearing, no matter what they do, it causes pain, then it's maybe you pursue the surgical option at that point. When we talk about the specific things like like a cartilage, right? Where it's our adaptation or our, our, our like interventions don't have the ability to create the same level of adaptation that we might get with like muscles or tendons. And then you have something else where it's like you talk about like a lot of the nerve issues that we talk about where the back is like the easiest example where you do something to take a little bit of pressure off the nerve, however you want to kind of word it. But either way, we can reduce the symptoms and it a lot of times will calm down over time. So yeah, I mean, it's one of those things where you're kind of hoping that the body will kind of calm down with some of your kind of interventions of just gently moving, encouraging movement. You know, I, I think I consider myself a movement optimist for the most part. And then a lot of times just kind of like 
keeping moving pain-free and then adding in some pain-free strengthening and range of motion will help it calm down, but sometimes it doesn't. And that's when you maybe look at the surgery route, but I think it's kind of like a kind of trial and error type thing. You just kind of ride it out with PT and then if it doesn't work, then maybe consider something else. Yeah. I think you hit some interesting points there as far as going back to saying how, how angry it is, because I think that's a very easy to digest way to kind of start to understand what's happening at the level of the joint and especially at the level of the connective tissue where the injury is present. So we know that you might take someone off the street and if they had imaging, they could potentially have a hip labral tear and not even know it. So at that point, you're thinking like, okay, this person has a hip labral tear. It's definitely relevant to their experience, but there's people out there that have hip labral tears and they're, they're not in pain. So it tells you that, okay, there, there's hope for someone to exist with this type of injury and not have pain. So the idea is how are we going to use exercise therapeutically to help them achieve that state? And the way that I always describe it to patients and even some of my students or interns when, when we have these discussions is you have a window of therapeutic loading, not only from a strengthening standpoint or a flexibility standpoint, but just from a loading standpoint. If someone has a really angry joint or a really angry connective tissue or labrum that's just not responding really well, it's likely that the load tolerance through the tissue or the joint is less than what's required for true strengthening. So what you have to do is gradually load the joint, even though knowing that the load that they're tolerating at that time isn't enough to actually create any strength changes that they would need. So this would be more of like your high irritability or higher moderate irritability patients where you might have to just use passive range of motion, maybe offload them, gradually reload them, and then start to use active assisted range of motion. And it's not that they may even have range of motion deficits. I think range of motion is one of the most underrated manual therapy techniques for calming a joint down. I think just repetitively stimulating the joint and either pain-free ranges or pushing it to the barrier of where the pain starts and just doing that repetitively throughout a treatment session can help decrease some pain and it's it's loading. So again, you want to apply a controlled dose of loading, allow the patient to recover from that controlled dose. And then once the body recovers from that, it should start to build tolerance and resilience. Now, your second point about if it's too angry and pissed off and no matter what you do, they have to get surgery. That's true. Some pathoanatomic injuries definitely influence how you load the joint. And if that injury is significant enough where you can't just calm it down. It just means you have a very narrow margin of error between not enough loading and too much loading. And eventually that window just becomes so small that there's no amount of gradual loading that's going to help them get out because life in general is just going to be too much to to calm it down. So with these higher ability patients, the name of the game is try to offload it. If it's really angry, gradually reload it within that, that window or that margin of error, and then progressively load to where the joint load tolerance can match the strengthening load tolerance that's required to create muscle gains and, and things like that. Yeah. I like what you said about the range of motion thing. So I, I like range of motion from like a couple different things. One, it's like, it's loading, like what you said, just a very low level, but two, it's just like a way to kind of like sit there, talk to your patient. And you're just like constantly assessing what that joint feels like, what motions make it angry in like the least invasive positions that you can be in. So it's a way to just kind of like gently kind of like guide it into the motions that you want to kind of like get toward. Like if you want to go into like hip flexion and you just tell them to flex their hip up and they just grab it and pull, like it's going to kind of hurt. But when you're kind of doing it manually, you can kind of pull them out into a little bit of abduction, maybe give a little bit of distraction 
and then try and like work them that way. And it's a way to kind of introduce the motions in like a nice pain-free way. And it gets their body thinking like, okay, I can do this pain-free kind of like out here, right? And then just kind of teaches them a little bit more on how to move, which like we kind of said before, like that's like one of the interventions for something like a hip or even like a shoulder type of thing, like same same type of thing where I, I can move this way pain-free. So that's, that's, that's okay for me. Yeah, yeah, I agree. I think the shoulder is a good example because what I see a lot of times in the shoulder, especially during passive range, I mean, it's kind of obvious if they start to guard and they get that forceful muscle contraction, the joint is so sensitized and irritable that that muscle contraction is going to limit how far you can take them in the passive range. And this even translates to some of the home exercise, whether it's table slides, pulleys, things like that, depending on their level of, of muscle contraction and guarding, that's, that can keep the, the joint irritable, even though you might be giving the right exercises, the way they're actually performing them could be causing an excessive amount of stress, especially if their irritability is high. So it's not only a matter of, of what you do. I could, I could look at two identical programs applied to two different patients and just seeing what they're doing isn't enough. I have to see how they're doing it to understand, to see if, if the program's actually going to be effective. Yeah. You kind of brought up that like pulley example. And obviously it's like you, like a good example is like a post-op rotator cuff patient, right? Where I don't use pulleys very often. I, I mean, I really Same. just don't treat very many post-op rotator cuffs anymore. But even when I did, I use pulleys very, 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 very sparingly because yeah. you normally just get like a little shoulder hike and then like some impingement and they go, Ooh, it hurts right there. And that's like not really what I'm going for. So I tended to use more things like table slides and things like that, like the kind of like standing hands on a table, forward bow type thing. And that seemed to be much, much better tolerated than a pulley where they're just kind of like cranking their arm up. That was never my favorite. So yeah. And I think that's a good point with, with a lot of post-ops is early on, you shouldn't really need to be overly aggressive to try to get this motion back. If you just range them, you take them to the barrier and then you kind of like repetitively explore that barrier and you keep it somewhat tolerable. I mean, if someone's really far out and they're stiff, then that changes the game a little bit. You got to be more aggressive, but early on, just be very tempered with your, with your passive range. Let some of the swelling calm down from the surgery. Let some of the inflammation calm down. And as long as you do what you're supposed to do, that range should come. I think getting overly aggressive with range too early is going to maintain them in an irritable state and could actually create the range of motion deficits that that you're trying to avoid and, and are fearful of. Yeah, kind of good. Like I think we kind of talked last episode. I was like, whenever I make mistakes, it's because I just tried to do too much too early. And that those are like the like the, the very few times where I kind of punch myself in my head is always when I like just do a little bit too much, a little bit too early and it flares them up. And then we kind of have to take a step back for the next two weeks while it calms down before we kind of get back to where we want to be. So, yeah. Yeah, I can't emphasize enough discussing that therapeutic window of loading with with our patients. I just get the question all the time, like, well, my doctor prescribed traction, my doctor prescribed Easton, my doctor prescribed that, like, shouldn't we be doing some of that? I'm like, yeah, we can, it's going to get your pain down. But at the end of the day, the only thing that's going to allow you to tolerate more physical stress to the site of the injury is gradual applications of physical stress where your body adapts to that and then builds resiliency to the future application of the same intensity or even slightly more. And then when you repeat that cycle over the course of eight weeks, your activity or your load tolerance has to match the demands of the activities in your life. And once you kind of reach that balance, then you can live life and pretty much do what you want to do pain-free. Again, if Joe Schmo comes in town and is like, hey, let's go kayaking for three hours and you haven't done anything to prepare for that, then you might start a new pain experience. Yeah, you kind of talk about using you know, things like traction to like get their pain down. So I think having the having the talk with your patient like early on because like I know you do 
a lot of like manual stuff when, when they're in a lot of pain. And so it's like, this is what we're going to do now, right? To kind of like help control your pain. And the goal is control your pain so you can do exercises. And then once they kind of get beyond that phase and their pain is, you know, a one out of 10 coming in instead of an eight out of 10 coming in, understand that we might do three minutes of manual or no manual at all, even though you're in a teeny bit of pain to see if these other things help a little bit more. No, I, I agree. I think a lot of new clinicians get stuck in categorizing their patient as mobilization or extension or flexion or whatever it is. And then I look at the chart 12 visits in and they're still doing extension bias things with like maybe a little bit of core strengthening, but there's really no progression. The, the mindset is we get them out of pain with extension. And then once they're pain free, you know, we did what we're supposed to do where uh, I think it's the opposite. I mean, you use the pain modulation strategies, you know, more heavily in the first few visits, and then you're just transitioning them to progress of loading and strengthening with transition to to function-based exercises. So like by visit 10 to 12, you should have layered all of your motor control, all of your hip strengthening into deadlifts and more functional things that can get them optimizing their performance in, in daily life. And that's the end game is get them doing those heavy progressive lifts, get those hormonal changes that are going to build tissue tolerance and load, load resilience and not getting stuck in the pain modulation phase and just making that your whole plan of care. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's all the stuff we learn in school about, you know, back pain and neck pain, like so much of it is about how to get them out of that acute stage. And then they just kind of like tell us to go be free and figure out how to get people from minimal pain back to like functioning where they don't get back into pain again. Right. And that's where all those kind of other interventions come in where maybe they were extension at first, but now maybe you want them to do like a hand heel rock or a cat camel where they're going into into a little bit of flexion and extension because flexion is no longer irritable for them. So they can go into that because during our life, we flex a little bit. So, um, yeah, like, like kind of layering in the, the next kind of two stages after, after stage one, when you're just kind of getting them out of that active pain process. Yeah. So you brought up a good point there with the, the back and the neck. And I think that kind of can open the door to the next piece of our conversation is just discussing therapeutic exercise in different areas. And the main area that I wanted to start with, just because during our back episode, we got cut a little short. And I feel like the neck is always such a hard place to prescribe therapeutic exercise because it's so manual based. And, you know, you can address soft tissue restrictions through the upper trap levators, the rhomboids, things around the scapula. And then once we get to the therapeutic exercise, it's like, all right, well, what are we going to do now? Should we strengthen? Are we going to do like cervical isometrics? Are we going to do stretching range? Like, it's just like a hodgepodge where we're just like, let me throw everything that I know about the neck and back at you. And just like, hope that these exercises make you feel better. Where I think switching to a more organized and guided approach with, with having an end game is going to be more beneficial. So I think when I go for my therapeutic exercise, I combine my manual therapy and deep neck flexor strengthening with a little bit of just like mobility snags, some pec stretching, postural things, self upper, upper thoracic mobilization. And that's in the pain modulation phase. But once I transition to true strengthening to get them into function, I feel like the two worlds of like lower back and core kind of merge with upper back and neck. And the progression that I use to kind of get there is almost like a quadruped protraction retraction layered in with like a chin tuck to maintain that neutral neck. And then a little bit of abdominal engagement through the uh, lower back to try to maintain that like neutral lumbar spine so they can really isolate the protraction retraction. And then I layer this into a plank. So what I'm seeing a lot in planks is 
when people are weak to their core, they're really utilizing their upper traps, they're shrugging, there's some cervical, uh, upper cervical hyperextension. And it's all kind of connected as far as, you know, if their core can't sustain them and get the lift, they're trying to lift and protract through their shoulder blades or lifting their hips. So I kind of layer this into a full body trunk strengthening exercise, making sure they can maintain neutral scapular position in the context of protraction, retraction, neutral, uh, neutral neck and neutral lumbar spine through an abdominal engagement. And people that strong people that can hold like three minute planks cave after like like 20 seconds of, of holding this plank. And they're like, I can't believe I've been doing my planks not this way the whole time. Like I definitely feel the difference or like trembling the whole time. It's pretty wild to see these really strong people just demonstrate how weak they actually are when they're trying to target what they, uh, what they wanted to target. Yeah. Yeah. I like the, I like working in the planks as well. And you talk about your kind of quadruped progression. Do you ever do that with like a TheraBand to add a little bit of resistance? I played around with that. Was, I don't treat as many necks anymore, but that's something that I kind of played around with a yeah. decent amount when I was I have it just because usually people struggle with this against gravity. And and then at that point, how functional is it actually going to be for what they need to do? Like very rarely are they actually going to have a resistance placed on their head during these movements. So it's not somewhere that I go. Ideally, what I would want is for them to hold the position for a longer period of time. I think it's more of an endurance based type of situation rather than like strength where I'm going to try to overload with some type of resistance. And the goal is, is can they maintain their neck and shoulder blade in a it's more of like a synergist in the movement to maintain the appropriate position for them to actually target their, their core. Yeah. I think that makes sense. Um, yeah, no, you could do it. Like, you know, we talk about kind of layering into like back exercises, right. So you do like a bird dog, right. And yeah, just kind exactly. of like, I've, I've been doing those with my neck patients. Um, yeah. I mean, that, that's something that I've worked in as well. So you talk about doing a plank, I do like side planks as well. Sometimes yeah. when I have kind of those and kind of maintain that head in neutral the whole time they're doing a side plank. I mean, with someone with a weak neck, it's pretty challenging to do that for 45 seconds a minute. Even modified side plank against like gravity, holding your head in that because like if their core is not strong enough, but you still don't want them to hold their head in that neutral position. I prefer that is like a cervical side bending isometric compared to like just jamming your head into your hand at like how, who knows what percent of like their max contraction. It's just a very uncontrolled dose when you're doing cervical isometrics. I am not a big fan. I'd rather have gravity, which is a constant, constant, I guess, force against your head. And then time is really the only variable that that changes as far as how much loading you're putting through the neck. It allows me to control that dose a little bit better. Yeah. Something that I've kind of been like starting to play around with a little bit more with like one myself to some of that kind of like injury prevention programming that I've kind of been working on for like Frisbee players and stuff is like when kind of getting into like the later stages for next stuff, working in like some like rotational work where it's like, so I got a little bit more from like kind of like golf research, right? Where it's, you have the, ideally you have a body rotating underneath of like a fixed head, right? So keep your head kind of fixed on the ball. So trying to be able to rotate your body like underneath of your neck. So toward like the later stage, honestly, if they can tell whenever they can tolerate it, working in some of that stuff, right? So that could be anything from like thread the needle, right? Where you just kind of keep the neck in one position, like an open book, same thing, or even like kind of like standing, like kind of like, chops, lifts, things like that. Anything where you're kind of rotating like the body underneath the neck, you're, you're, you're getting a little bit of kind of cervical rotation at that point too. So I'm curious if you do any of that. I'm still in kind of the infancy stages of kind of working that in. Like I said, like I don't work with that many necks. So it's, I, I have more theory behind why I do it versus like a lot of practical experience where I can give a lot of like super good tidbits. I'm curious if you did anything like that. Yeah, it depends on the patient. If the patient has rotational sports in mind or like activities, like 
I have um, one patient that is an artist and she like creates these like giant canvas paintings that she like carries and like a very twisted like head is like tilted, her body's tilted. She has to like maintain that position. So I do add in like a lot of rotational work with, with her in that context. Obviously, if I have like a golf or anything like that, like thoracic mobility, getting that full rotation throughout their swing is, is huge. I wouldn't say to every patient, most patients that I have, if their main goal is like, all right, get them out of pain and then get back in the gym and like build some load tolerance. I try to, I, I pretty much stick to getting them to find that neutral neck, neutral scapular position, neutral lumbar spine, and then creating proximal trunk stability while engaging in, in distal mobility through their strengthening and just extrapolating that to their gym work, which we'll get into in a little bit more detail, but only the rotation if it's like necessary for what they want to do. Yeah, man, I think that's fair. One case that I want to talk about that's pretty interesting is this girl that I have that's like a rock climber who has some like middle thoracic pain, like chronic manipulator, like cracks her back all the time. And she obviously has like postural deficits. She like sits at a, a desk and all that stuff. But the main thing that that we teased out when looking at looking at her case is anytime she goes to l- engage her periscapular musculature through like a prone T, a prone Y, prone W, her main strategy, she's so weak through her shoulder blade that she almost like lifts and hinges right at the side of lo- uh, right at the side of her pain in the thoracic spine. So my, it's, almost, it's like like a hinge point in the back, but like at the T spine. Exactly. So lift, what'd you say? But in but in, in into like extension, which like there's not much of so interesting yeah and it wasn't like upper thoracic it's more like lower thoracic like tlj type area where she would start to hinge and load and it literally just reproduced her pain and symptoms that she had when rock climbing and when you start to think about it when you're rock climbing you're reaching overhead you might be going into a little bit of extension to kind of reach that next grabbing point and she had just been repetitively extending and loading there one from a lack of core strength through her lumbar spine from the inability to maintain that in neutral but also weakness through her shoulder blade. That was just where she was able to extend and create loading rather than getting that like scapular retraction, posterior tilting as she went into that overhead motion. How was her like mid thoracic mobility? So she was a chronic manipulator. So she had a, she has a sedentary job where she like almost like pipettes all day. So she's like very crouched. So she's very limited through her upper thoracic and mid thoracic. And we've mobilized her on and off, but it's one of those things where she kind of like cracks her own back anyways and can like get it to go. And like, we get it to go when we try in the clinic. So she's kind of like stuck in that loop of like my upper back is stiff. I crack it. It feels good. But then I stiffen back up. So from that end, we just continue to focus on strengthening and stability. But I think it's a combination of her work activity that keeps her in that forward position. So in that regard, we did add more postural variability type exercises self-thoracic mobilization, regular mobility. So at work, we instructed her, you know, every hour, every 30 minutes, whatever, whenever you can get into 10 to 15 scapular retractions, maintaining the abdominals activated to really isolate that upper back extension rather than getting lower back extension. And then at home, she wakes up, does the open books, puts herself over like a half foam, does some self-thoracic mobs. So we did add some mobility as like a complement to her program in the upper back. Cool. Yeah. So it seems like, I mean, when you have like a self-manipulator, a lot of times the mobility itself isn't like necessarily their big thing. So it's, it's more it's how chiropractors stay in business. I mean, she's like a chiropractor's dream. She would go, I mean, not to knock chiropractors, there's some that do mobilization and therapeutic exercise and do a great job at it. But I mean, more of just like, all right, I've been seeing my chiropractor for 10 years and he just cracked my back and I leave. Um, yeah. So I, I, I like chiropractors, you know, like any profession, there's good ones and there's bad ones. Um, same thing for PT, there's good ones and there's bad ones. But she would be the candidate where like, if she told me I saw a chiropractor for 10 years and he just cracked my back and I left, it would not solve her problem. 
but it would make her feel good for a few days or however long it took her to lock back up. Yeah. Sorry, go ahead, Mike. Were you going to say something? Uh, uh, so it seems like it's like mostly like a movement control, like strength type case more so than anything with like maybe a little bit of like back cracking or mo- mo- like mobility stuff to kind of get started um, for the first like five minutes of your treatment session. And then it's yeah. kind of going. Yeah. And, and she's now getting to the point where we've layered it into like the plank type position, working on just pr- like overall proximal control putting all the different parts of like the core strengthening, the upper back strengthening, maintaining the neck in in a neutral position, in a plank position. And then we've also layered that into like lat pull downs, reverse flies, rows, shoulder extension on on a cable machine, making sure that she's able to engage through her shoulder blade, maintain her her lumbar spine or lower spine in that neutral position. She's not overarching, especially as the load gets higher. She's going to want to go back into that type of extension and then slowly weaning her back into her, her rock climbing. Yeah, that's a cool one. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's just an interesting case that, that, yeah. that has a few different angles to it that you can really see how, okay, we're, we're focusing on mobility, we're focusing on pain modulation. Now let's get to movement control in the context of not only the upper back, the shoulder blade, and the, and the lumbar spine, and then let's layer that into functional gym things that she can do regularly to help keep her in shape for rock climbing. So you really go through your like phase one, two, and three of like pain modulation, movement control, and then functional optimization. And you can really see how your cervical and upper back therapeutic exercise, um, there's a lot of things to work with from a true strengthening standpoint, other than just like, all right, well, you're going to come for 12 visits and we're going to do manual and stretch and thoracic mobility the whole time. Yeah. Yeah. Now, did you work on, so I'm picturing like rock climbing, right? You're kind of on the wall when you kind of reach up overhead, Mm -hmm. you have to extend through something in order to kind of clear the wall so your face doesn't smash into it. Did you work on like having her extend through like mid thoracic more so than just right at like the TLJ where she had kind of that hinge point that you were talking about? Yeah, I think that ties into the regular mobility that I think if she sticks to it, it opens up everything else to create motion. So no one specific area is being overloaded. Um, But we did layer it into like some like, eventually like we got into like some wall slide type situations where she can kind of like get to that posterior tilt and like retraction. So that's kind of the end game is like getting to those really functional positions. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. Yes. All right. Yeah. And I think as far as like discussing therapeutic exercise in the lumbar spine, I think we really hit it last episode as far as like the motor control and like what we do and like layering it into like squats and deadlifts and all that. I don't think we really need to explore that too much. Let's get into the, the knee a little bit. And I think this is more of your niche than mine. Talk to me, uh, Mike, what do you like to do in the knee? Are you a proponent of promoting hip dominant patterns and having that kind of help contribute to better patellofemoral biomechanics? Or are you more in favor of like, let's choose some knee dominant strategies, gradually load that patellar tendon, load the quad, load the knee so it builds resilience. Like where do you fall in this spectrum? And I I personally don't have an opinion because I don't see too many knees. So like right now, like a huge majority of my knee population is like adolescent females, which like in my mind is like the hardest of all the like knees to treat that like adolescent female patellofemoral pain. It's just like a tricky one, um, but I'll try and break it down. So you have like the one group of people that's like just like a true like overload. And that's going to be like your cross country runner that comes in with like anterior knee pain. Right. And at that point, it's like, okay, why don't we just decrease your running, let it calm down. And then we'll kind of go from there. So during that calm it down phase, it's going to be mostly like 
like just like hip strengthening if they look horrible when they squat type of thing and kind of like offloading it and letting it calm down then there's like the other group where it's like all they do is walk for like 20 minutes a day they're just like a sedentary person and their knee also hurts right and so you have kind of like two different things one is like this like crazy overuse where it's like okay this knee's just taking a beating and maybe we just kind of need to calm down a little bit the other one's like this person is just sedentary and weak and probably has a low pain tolerance in general right and so there's i i, I do my best to kind of break it down in, in, into people that might actually benefit from some quadriceps loading which i think everyone will if you look at there was like a study i read not too long ago but they look at a bunch of like mil military recruits right and so there's the recruits have like no um like knee pain and they look at all the factors you know a whole bunch of different things and one of the things that they looked at was their quad strength and so that was like by far the biggest predictor and this is like thousands and thousands of like military recruits like the best predictor was how strong their quad was and this is one that when they're asymptomatic pain free when, whenever they do the testing and so i think at some point we need to get into improving their quad strength before we kind of like discharge them right because if you just if all you do is strengthen the hips and then the knee kind of calms down but then you send them back to their stuff but they don't have appropriate quad strength and their chance of kind of developing that kind of like repeat pain probably goes up so to kind of like parse out like when i introduce the quad loading i like to do so one like i play around with just like patellar mobility and like the people that are like super hyper mobile they might get a lot of like kind of like micro movement underneath of that patella whenever they do normal day-to-day -day things right and so i like to have them do a squat see how it feels and then I'll provide a little bit of like compression to the patella and see if that helps. Uh, if that helps, then I'll definitely tape them. But then what I'll also do is I'll have them do either like a squat or like a step down, um, but I'll put like a band behind their knee to kind of like engage them into like a TKE. And so if their positioning looks decent and then they engage that quad as they kind of stand up or, you know, whatever, and their pain decreases, then I'm going to be more willing to kind of go after that quadricep strengthening a little bit earlier. Yeah. So I guess hip strengthening, if it's like really mad and that's just because it's not loading patellofemoral joint, right? So it's just like anything like that's almost like you're like off loading phase. I don't think there's anything special about it. And then obviously playing around with like some movement control things, right? Like fix their knee position, kind of see what it does. But what I found is that, so sometimes fixing the knee position works. What I found is more just like putting tape on it and then honestly like engaging that quad by the use of like a TKE or something kind of helps to decrease that pain and so yeah did yeah. that answer it sorry I kind of rambled a bit there no no I yeah it definitely made sense I feel like I don't treat the knee too much so like I'm very biased on how I approach things because of my niche kind of being the spine and the hips so when I look at the knee I always think of like okay poor proximal control results in poor femoral control and then that increases knee joint stress and you know so I really tend to focus on the core and the hips and I still load the quad but I kind of and it's kind of like the chicken and the egg type situation like is the knee pain causing quad inhibition and therefore you see quadriceps weakness and then we automatically think based on some studies that quad weakness causes knee pain because in this population we see quad weakness where it does the pain cause the quad weakness so for me it's kind of like I always focus on the core and the hips and then work my way down but again once they like you said once their irritability drops then I do some more targeted like quadriceps loading and the quadriceps loading definitely has value like you mentioned from an eccentric standpoint of like not only getting terminal knee extension but then eccentrically controlling knee flexion during dynamic movements yeah and you know we talk about like anterior knee pain like that's something you can go you can go so deep into the weeds on like what are like biomechanical things and things like that but like unless you're working with a super high level like runner it's just really hard to dedicate like enough time to 
retrain gate mechanics and things like that. But like, like what you said, I think if you're not doing some sort of like hip strengthening, proximal stability stuff as, as part of your program, then I think you're doing your patients a huge disservice. But it, like, I think like for me, it's like kind of like the like lead domino example, right? So for, for, for each patient that kind of comes in, trying to figure out which component is going to be kind of like the lead domino. Once you fix that, then a lot of other things kind of fall into place, right? So some people, it's going to be that kind of like hit proximal control, right? Because every time they squat, jump, run, everything, their knees doing all sorts of weird things that it shouldn't be doing, right? And and those and, and those people then probably, yeah, that proximal control is probably the lead domino that I want to spend 75% of my treatment on and then 25% on other accessory things. And then there's some people where their movement control looks good, right? But maybe it's just like a load issue. And at that point, it's probably less is more, right? Where it's like, why don't we just kind of calm down? And then at that point, it's like maintaining strength of other things is like the main goal. And there's the other people where, like I said, like if, if they kind of engage their quad and it seems to help their pain feel better, then that's probably where I'm going to work on spending a little bit more of my time. That makes sense because the... Uh... I mean, the quadriceps do create that like compressive force of the patella into the trochlea. So if that improves a little bit of the, I guess the stress distribution underneath the kneecap and helps improve some of the, um, the load dispersion as well, then that makes total sense. Yeah. Yeah. And it's tricky too, because then you get into the weeds of like, when you have just like a true patellofemoral issue versus someone that like may have like a little bit of like a lesion, right? And so you have like the patellofemoral stuff, which is kind of more that just kind of like diffuse, kind of like achy pain, right? But then it's like, if you have someone that may have like a lesion, it's like, it just hurts at like that same spot of like your squat or your step down or whatever. Like every time it's the sharp pain, right when you hit that point, then when you get through that point, it kind of goes away. You come back up, you engage that part of the patella or the trochlea or whatever parts, kind of like the mad part and the pain comes back. That's, and that's a little bit trickier too, because then it's like, okay, well, we, we can maintain strength maybe outside of these painful ranges and, and that opens up a whole new can of worms. Yeah, it's that, hard. Is, that is tricky. That it definitely yeah. is. I think that's probably why I've stayed away from the knee just because like, like you said, there's certain times where there's lesions that are going to affect the loading. And at that point, like you try to gradually load, you try to hit that therapeutic window, but at some point there's only so much that you can do from like a strengthening and mobility flexibility standpoint because that lesion is going to engage during that certain angle yeah and it's not like once like the lesions there it's not one of those things it's, it's not like a muscle that's going to heal up pretty good then we gradually load it and then it feels pretty good over time and maybe you have some little kind of chronic things it, like I'm, like you can make the pain feel better but it might always be there to some extent right so once it calms down to an acceptable level trying to figure out ways that they can load and so they can keep playing the sport or doing whatever they want to do it's not like you know you have like a patella tendinopathy that's like we kind of understand how to treat it right it's like the best like meathead diagnosis where they just come in like all right you have a painful tendon we'll make sure it's not too painful and then once it gets to the point where it's able to be loaded with four ish out of ten pain or less let's just load the crap out of it and there we go so yeah i think my biggest challenge when i start to get to like the knee and the shoulder is my brain is trained to see all of like the proximal deficits and then i obviously get into like what i know are like the the distal deficits where in the shoulder whether it's like you know you need to do some biceps loading some rotator cuff loading you know, in the knee, quadriceps, hamstring loading. For me, I'm like, all right, I want to do like two hours worth of treatment because I know that we want to train these proximal deficits and also the distal deficits to to get the full picture. But it's kind of like, man, like I don't want to have this person here for two hours or make them feel like they should be here for two hours. So that's that's a definitely a challenge is like you have to address the full picture, especially in athletes where uh, especially like throwers, things like that, you got to hit the hips, the core all the way up the chain. It becomes, becomes really challenging. Yeah, like throwers is like, 
like the toughest example, right? Because like I've read probably 30 research articles on throwers and all these things and the thrower comes in and I know like what the biomechanics should look like and all this stuff. I'm like, we just don't have the ability to address that in here. Like I can't have you on the mound pitching in here. Like it's just like, we just don't have that like access. So it's like, you know, you kind of work on some stuff, you work on some strength stuff, maybe you work on a couple of little like positional things, but it's like outside of like the the like big like huge stuff right where it's like someone's i don't know like a huge crazy like arm whip that's doing something weird i don't know where you kind of talk about that but other than that it's like a lot of the people that come in they have like a coach they may have like a pitching coach or something that like i think would be more advantageous to work on them with that if it's someone that doesn't have access to some of that stuff then maybe i'd try and do like the poor man's version of it and kind of talk but if i have like a 10 year old coming in it's I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that they have a pitching coach that's willing to work on it and i can tell kind of mom and dad kind of some things that we see i'll also have them kind of film them throwing when they're at practice or something so I can look at a couple of different things but other than that it's like looking at some different things right like if I have them do like a little like hop and hold type thing do they have good balance right and if they don't have good balance or good core strength then you can expect that they're getting all sorts of extraneous movement kind of through their core and through that kind of like shoulder girl complex it's going to create more of that like whipping motion that might irritate the elbow so I, I think it's, it's so tough implementing like your your higher level like assessment and intervention like in clinic because a lot of times it's just like you you just need space that I don't think a lot of people have equipment that a lot of people don't have. So my approach, especially with throwers, cause that's not, not a specialty of mine is kind of address the deficits that I see to a certain point. And then at a certain level, when it's like return to throwing and things like that, I mean, you can do your, your return to sport assessments, closed kinetic chain up or extremity test, your seated shot put, your, your bio decks, looking at ER to IR ratios, things like that torque production. But at that point, I'm like, when you're getting to like your throwing mechanics, you, you need a throwing coach and you need to follow like a return to throwing type program. So yeah, I try not to get outside of, of my scope on, on that one or just refer to a different PT. But I, again, in the confines of like a regular, like every 30 minute or every 15 minute type of schedule in a clinic, it's really hard to give due diligence to, to that type of athlete. Um, they really need one-on-one and um, a lot of time and attention. Yeah, I think you brought up a good point though, because like, even though we might not be working on like like the perfect throwing mechanics with them, we we can check off all of the boxes to make sure they have what they need to like be able to give themselves a chance to succeed with like a pitching coach or or something like that right so making sure the range of motion is good core stability is good single leg stance stability is good all the other things yeah so yeah and then before we wrap up i just wanted to talk a little bit about jumping especially since we were discussing the knee kind of giving like our own jumping progression what we look at because i think getting to at least when you're looking at athletes getting them to achieve their drop landings and, and getting them to jump a little bit better is going to help reduce some of the the joint stress in the knee. And if you don't get to that level, you know, even though you get them out of pain with the strengthening and all that, if you don't get to the next stage, which is the functional optimization with their tasks, then I don't think you're going to see the long-term results that you want. So Mike, talk us through your like progression of, of jumping and what you look for. Yeah. So I like to work on like load absorption. That's probably the first thing, right? So making sure that they have good control of the squat. So you can do like a little mini like uh, drop jump, right? Where you just kind of like set up a little plyo box. They just kind of jump off and land. And sometimes I'll do even before that, I'll have them either like load up quickly with like a chair behind them. So they work on kind of like dropping their butt downs, almost like get into like a squat hover, but like super quick. Another one that I'll do is like take a, like a light medicine ball, you know, six pounds or so, hold it up overhead. They have to drop it and then they have to drop down into like a deep squat and catch it. So work on like load absorption that way. Then next would probably be like a box jump. 
right? So they're not dealing with as much. You, you're not getting both the load release and like much load of like heavy load absorption. You kind of use the oxygen to kind of decrease the like ground reaction forces that way. Then it'd be like a straight vertical jump and then working in different planes, like horizontal, working in broad jump. And then it'd be like your kind of like rebound jump where you're dropping off, like jumping off of like a step and then kind of rebounding back up. Uh, you'll see that in research as like the drop vertical jump. That's how they um, reference it a lot in research. And yeah, then it just becomes like single leg tasks of like a similar type progression. And then just more like repetitive type hopping tasks where they're doing something over and over and over and maybe even under a little bit of fatigue um, so they can work on maintaining their form of fatigue. I think that's roughly my progression. Yeah. Yeah. I like all those things. I definitely love like the drop jump to vertical jump, especially where they're like getting that knee flexion, hip flexion to load and then using that energy to to leap up to, to propel their next jump. And I was actually discussing this with my intern just to kind of, you know, quiz them in the clinic, do whatever. And we were talking about what's called the amortization phase, which is the transition between the descent and ascent for, for jumping. And I was kind of throwing it out there and seeing, you know, what he thought, do you want a long amortization phase? You want a short amortization phase and good for him. He got it right. You want a short amortization phase where you're using the energy from the absorption and the loading of that musculature to propel you forward or propel you upward in this case for the energy of the next jump. So the shorter that phase, the shorter that transition between the descent and ascent, the more you can use that energy, almost like you're loading a spring to propel you upward. Yeah, um, I had the same talk with one of my students actually not too long ago, but he had never even heard of the face, which I was kind of surprised. But, you know, we kind of talked about how you use kind of like at first we're just working on the, the load absorption. Right. And then the then the, the ultimate goal of like your plyometric training is to shorten that amortization phase and produce more force coming out of the ground. And so I, I also like to work on because you you'll see people doing like a big, deep load absorption and then like a full rebound. Right. Which is like great. But. That's not often how we jump in like sports, right? So I like to work on different depths of my like drop landings and rebound jumps and even just like vertical jumps and things like that. So you have like your full big load absorption, right? Where you drop your butt down way low and explode as high as you can. And that's like a longer movement. And then you have your almost like kind of like dropping down only like a quarter of the way, right? If you're like a basketball player going to like make a dunk, right? It's not like they're going into this massive hip and knee flexion. They're just springing up. So you want to work on that little spring too, as you get your people kind of back to closer to the sport. And that's going to put a lot of like a lot of stress on the knee a little bit more so because it's can't use your hips as much to absorb the load. So the, the kind of quad and calf has to kind of work on decelerating you like a little bit more to just, just all, all of the same force just happens a lot quicker. So making sure that they can handle that. I like to make sure I get in for the end of rehab too. Yeah. And what I wanted to kind of get into off of that with jumping is especially with me treating this, the spine and the core and the hips, at least during progressive strengthening, what I emphasize a lot is like abdominal activation and like neutral spine and engaging the core and this and that. So the delineation that I try to make with all the patients is, listen, I'm putting you in these positions. I'm promoting this to help you target what you're trying to target within the exercise. You don't want to tighten up your core while walking. And you don't want to try to tighten up your core while, while jumping or doing these task specific things. Patients almost like extrapolate this and they'll like, tell me like, Oh, I've been really trying to like tighten my core while walking. I'm like, no, 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 no. Like that's not, that's not what you want. You want to be very relaxed and allow your body to absorb the impact of the ground so that you're not creating stiffness and in your joints aren't absorbing that impact. So it's kind of tough because in one way I'm like preaching like, okay, for these like static stability exercises, you want that like spinal stiffness to target and load what you want to load. But once we get to dynamic things, that's not how you want to do these movements. These are meant to be very relaxed and you want this joint motion to help absorb the impact. 
Yep, exactly. And then you want them to be able to have the strength so when they kind of step on like a root and their center balance gets off that they can kick on their core and be able to kind of like pull themselves back into like an upright stance position. But yeah, you don't want, if you're bracing your core the whole time, that's probably not the best. Yeah. And there's a study in JOSBT that already looked at it and they demonstrated that abdominal activation and like spinal stiffness, core stiffness during like drop landing tasks increases joint stress so yeah and they did it with running too right um i can't recall the one that i remember is jumping but i'm sure they've done it with running too um but yeah that's that's kind of the main thing that i wanted to talk about too because you know sometimes in the clinic i'll talk about spinal stiffness engaging the spine neutral spine this and that and i always have to delineate that there's these exercises are almost like poses in yoga like i want you to get into this position in this pose and the better you get at this it's going to help you target what you want to target strengthen what you want to strengthen without compensatory strategies but once we get to dynamic movement, you have to be fluid and relaxed and kind of like not worry so much about conscious things like activating your core. Yeah. Anything else, Mike, you wanted to touch on before we wrap up? I can't think of anything. I mean, for the joints we touched, I think we did a decent job kind of talking to at least how we kind of think about it. So yeah, cool. Well, this will wrap up today's episode. We have uh, two more episodes coming out for season three, and then we'll probably take a short break, maybe record a little bit in some downtime and then work on getting season four out probably by, uh, I don't know, Mike, end of summer, maybe into fall. Yeah, sure. I think we can uh, figure it out. I can always make time. Yeah. Yeah. I know you're busy with launching your new uh, website and return to Frisbee program and injury prevention program. So you'll have to squeeze me in. Yeah. I can always make time for you, buddy. All right. Thanks, guys. If you're enjoying the content, leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. If you have any questions or want any of the research that we talk about or even want to just uh, recommend topics for us to discuss in the podcast that you're interested in, you can always just reach out through our Facebook page or personal Instagrams, whichever medium you prefer. Thanks, everybody.